0: This evening for the evening talk I would uh, like to uh, give a commentary on uh, one or two poems of uh, Rainer Maria Rilke who perhaps one of the best known, best loved uh, poets in the uh, German uh, language of the century. and. There has been, as many of you might know, a quite remarkable uh, translation of a number of his uh, foremost poems by uh, the Buddhist uh, writer Stephen Mitchell, which was his volume of poetry of the translation was received with much acclaim in the world of poetry. And... um, through those who are great lovers of the poet Rilke. And upon arriving uh, here, uh, Guy and uh, Sally, Guy's wife, very kindly gave me a new book of a number of translations of the poetry of Rilke, in this case, from a selection known as the Book of Hours. And the two translators for the book one is Joanna Macy who is very active in the world of engaged Buddhism a fellow member like myself of the International Board of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and a poet, uh, Anita Burrows so while uh, here over the days I've been uh, lending my uh, eye on some of the poems. And those of you who incidentally also have a love and appreciation of the written word and particularly of uh, poetry, that it can be a form of uh, reflection and insight when handled with care and attentiveness and heartfulness can be quite deep, run very deep in ourselves. And there are some poems which perhaps if express the closest perhaps that language can ever get to truth. If there is a medium in the field of language to bring truth clear and available, then some poems seem to have that, it seems they seem to resonate, seem to strike something. And Rulka, in various times of tremendous insight and inspiration, I feel, carries that communication over. But as if I may say, as a uh, poor and useless uh, poet myself, that one of the dangers of re- reading decent poetry is that one hesitates to write one's own (laughs) but if you don't mind taking that risk then uh, poets of uh, Rilke quality can be a great breath of fresh air so I've I've taken two from the book from uh, uh, Joanna and uh, uh, Anita, and if I may, I'll read one and then begin to give some uh, commentary and see how it applies to the Dharma of existence. <coughs> Starts off with a his, but please remember the uh, not gender-bound, obviously, obviously. No one lives his life disguised since childhood haphazardly assembled from voices and fears and little pleasures. We come of age as masks. Our true face never speaks. Somewhere there must be storehouses where all these lives are laid away, like suits of armor or old carriages or clothes hanging limply on the walls. Maybe all paths lead there to the repository of unlived things. This poem and other poems in the Book of Hours has as its background a period of time when Rilke went to a Russian monastery And he spent some time there in the silence of things there, in the uh, simplicity and in the ritual of that uh, monastery. And after he left the monastery, he returned to uh, Germany. And as things can be for each and every one of us, something there which he perhaps hadn't realized or recognized during the time there began to Touch those deep places inside, and uh, in a movement, gave reflection and reflection to poetry and poetry, communicating something of mystery. And as with Rilke, he's a, it's a combination, some effusion of extraordinary insights into existence which are paradoxical and with a remarkable capacity for love and sensuality. And the themes of love, sensuality, and the mystical weave together in remarkable ways. And he starts off, which is remarkable. No one lives his life. And we could just take that single line of Rilke, burn all our books (laughs) and contemplate on the truth of this one line. And if we were to spend years on the one line, no one lives his life Actually, as I say this, I wonder why I'm going to go on. (laughs) No one lives his life. So in the evening talk uh, yesterday uh, evening, and perhaps a a little flow on uh, from this, there is much too much which everyday ordinary mind takes for granted. And in taking things for granted, what we tend to do is to lay claim over the apparent self-evident, stick to it with unquestioning obedience, and fail to doubt it. It's as though in our human existence... We almost have a medieval way of looking. As, for example, we look out at the stars at night and we say to ourselves and to others, the stars shine. So, it seems so obvious. Beautiful, clear night and the stars are shining. We actually know stars don't shine. We look out and we say, apart from a few bumps, uh, we look out, and the, the world appears extraordinarily flat. And the mind initially will say, "Well, it couldn't possibly be round, as, uh, as they thought, in our forefathers and foremothers thought, because if it was round, then people would be sliding off the <laughs> off the edge." <laughs> They're doing it when it's flat, anyway, and. But we know we have another knowledge which is deceptive insofar as the eyes say stars shine, the eyes say the earth is flat. But something else tells us we have known, we have learned, we have understood possibly that actually what the eyes tell us isn't actually the way things are in the world that we know. Maybe that perception and the obvious logic has to extend itself right through everything no one lives his life so inner life and its movement to uh, uh, with and through the world through its reification say you well, to ourselves in countless numbers of ways I am living my life this is my life and I live my life I look around me and others are uh, living their life and at some moment in time they will stop living their life and I will stop uh, living my life and some will say later the better and others a bit depressed will say sooner the better and None of us know in the so-called living of one's life what percentage of it is over. We can assume all too easily, well, I am such and such an age, and being of such and such an age, uh, therefore perhaps half of my life or more is over. I went through the laborious task of, out of um, curiosity, counting up through the years of birth on the information form, how many people, the number of the people on the retreat, and the average year in which people were born. (laughs) I I was trying to prove a theory to Shada and Guy. I think. Not myself. So it worked out that the average person who thinks they're living their life (laughs) was born in 1952. So the average age, and median age as well, in fact, that's equal number either side, is 1952. So the average age in this hall is uh, 45 Uh, Years. And one says, Well, my life is passing through, and perhaps I have X number of uh, years to go, but nobody knows, obviously, what percentage of the life is uh, over. And we carry the view with it I'm living my life, and at some time comes the end of life, or a change in my life, or whatever. And it seems that the life force the energy, the vitality, the biology of one's existence the psychology of one's existence does bear a consistent unbroken moment to moment relationship with I I live my life I have this life I have been given this life it's my life it's your life and We use the language associated with the feelings and the images and the thoughts and the associations with such frequency that I and my life become an ingrained habit. And the ingrained habit gains such a momentum and a strength to it, it becomes what we believe to be the real truth. This is my life. And it's as though we've kind of extracted out of the vast and immeasurable field of existence the form out of it called my life and with it the movement of the eye. And with the movement of the eye it keeps associating itself with features which one calls my life. We say... "Mm, um, um, my my body I have a body, this is my body and then the I shifts off there and it leaves that behind momentarily and then it will shift to another feature and it says um, these are my emotions and in the wave of emotions we might forget all about body in those moments and posture and the shape of our legs and arms and head and weight and gender and all of that that goes on and we're embroiled in the emotional life, and the eye is risen, and it's now involved in the emotions. And then it might drop away from all of that, and the next moment it's arising, and it says, Well, this is what I see, and this is what I hear, and I smell, and I taste, and I, and I touch. And then this eye has arisen, and it's moving itself through each one of the sense stores, it's related to that, it's not involved in the emotions at that moment, it's not involved in the body, and it's got a new area for the eye to latch on to. And in the very moment, one's completely in the emotions, then the eye is not with the body, so the body is not high at that time, because it's forgotten. And it's in the emotions, and sometimes the emotions fade away, and then it's gone to the, to the sense doors, and then it's got, gone to the thinking. Oh, I am thinking about this, I am remembering that, I am planning that. And it dances and jumps. And sometimes we say to ourselves, well, I do it purposefully. (laughs) And we like to think that I have control over where I go. Uh, But if in this moment, while those of you who are specifically daydreaming in here i was to go who would be so bold as to put up their hand in here and say i didn't hear that what choice was that given a little bit of bouncing of the ringing of the the gong through the hall doesn't matter where the mind was you could have been thinking about this uh, woman you're attracted to in the hall and forgotten the teaching or what would be the hot drink tonight or (laughs) whatever Uh, yes right whatever and this fellow comes along and gives a, a bounce on the gong and the eye has gone to hearing oh I heard that and I very rudely interrupted the best fantasy of the week or something. (laughs) So here's, pardon me, the movement of the eye, and in its movement it takes up in uh, what's of heart, mind, body, perceptions, states of mind, whatever, or it moves, as it were, back from that momentarily or a little bit uh, longer, And it says, ah, I am aware of this. I am aware of my life. And the eye locates itself with the consciousness, oh, I am watching my life. I am observing uh, my, my life. And the repetition of this convinces us strongly and rather deeply that we are living our life. It's my life, this is the condition of my existence this is who i am rather than the i arises in connection and in relationship too but sometimes it doesn't sometimes it doesn't in the <clears throat> the meditation which sees a thought as a thought it just sees <clears throat> the feeling as the feeling <clears throat> Body sensation is body sensation. Seeing is seeing, hearing is hearing, as Guy related to the other evening in the story of uh, Be Here. And there's just observing or awareness or mindfulness of. And it doesn't feel or seem like that the eye is rising and grabbing hold of it. It might, of course, after the experience. And the eye rises and says, Oh, I had experience without the eye. And the other area, too, which the eye doesn't, doesn't arise is, of course, when there is a, a deep sleep. And therefore, the eye isn't entering into the field of body feelings, perceptions, thoughts, uh, states of mind, or whatever. <clears throat> there is a state of uh, deep sleep. One wakes up in the morning, and though the scientists or the, the dream experts say, oh, we're dreaming all the time, but one wakes up in the morning and one says, oh, I have a really deep sleep. And one has no recollection from, of having a dream. The eye wasn't there, active, doing anything whatsoever. And in the morning energy arises, the eye arises, and the eye said, says, oh, I had a deep sleep. And the eye is drawn out of something where it wasn't. No one lives his life. Disguised since childhood, haphazardly assembled, haphazardly assembled from voices and fears and little pleasures. From voices and fears and little pleasures. Language of the the Dharma there. So, as I said, there's this haphazard assembly of described as being human. Being human, simple uh, label that we use. It's haphazardly assembled in so far as going back to the gong for a moment, going back to what the attention turns to, some Sometimes we say, I chose to do that. That was what I decided to do. And sometimes we just want to think that. We want to believe that. And from, I may say, from my observation over the years of working uh, with people and looking into my uh, own life, that most major decisions of life occur after the event they occur and then one says to other people I decided (laughs) and events are just unfolding themselves the eye arises and it selects out of it and it said I did I am or I will And it loves to lay claims to what I did, what I am doing, or what I will. And that movement and all the disparate movement that goes along with it is all, I think as Rilke says, as the Buddha said, haphazardly assembled. And if one hasn't learned that in sitting on the cushion, And if one only had a tape recorder and maybe a video for one's own mind and we had a screen (laughs) to see what goes through the mind in 45 minutes would be absolutely... Convinced of the insight of Rulka, <laughs> who says haphazardly assemble. <laughs> From voices and fears and little pleasures. From voices and fears and little pleasures. And sometimes in the simplicity and kind of innocence and purity of our perceptions as human beings, and looking with interest and a mild sense of wonder, even at the waves that ripple through our life and our existence as we so think, there, even in all of that sometimes we say, but what is it really? Various inner voices that we have Approving and disapproving, liking and disliking, satisfied with, dissatisfied with. Kind of the, the chatters of the mind, sometimes a little bit more intensity and sometimes a little bit less. And we wonder, where did, where did that one come from? And we turn our attention back, and a little voice inside says, Oh, that came out of the childhood, or that came out of that conversation with that person or people or something that I digested and that's run running its gauntlet as it were through me at the present time or whatever and, and some of the fears come and the little pleasures of life which touch us and, and we are grateful and they also seem to dissolve very quickly. We kind of weave inwardly and outwardly in our life as it were through all of that and the language of the I and the our life enters into, enters into it all. But when we actually say, well, where or what or who is this I? We have an extraordinary task in trying to locate that which we go on and on about. We actually say, where is the damn thing that reappears ghost-like in multiple situations and... In stopping and being still, one has an extraordinary difficulty in locating it. And one can say to oneself, okay, stuff, unresolved problems, repression, suppressions, fears, and anxiety, okay, I am ready. Come strong or weak, much or little, I am ready for it. Bring it all up. This is the moment to liberate myself from it. And the eye is powerless. Anger, come on, come on, come on. come on. <laughs> fears, right, ready, I'm ready for the fears. I've been here all week now, fears. I'll take fears today, anger tomorrow, and... and little pleasures on Sunday morning. (laughs) So somehow it seems that the eye is impotent. It can't just say, right, this is the moment, I'll deal with this. And see that the impotency of the eye, that it by its character, its feature, its bemusing presence, dependently arises, like anything else. It arises because the conditions are there for it to arise. And when the conditions are there and all the stuff that goes with the conditions, if the conditions are not there, it doesn't arise. In deep sleep, the conditions are not there. In the deep sleep, it doesn't arise. Things begin to change, it arises. So the dependent arising of conditions seems to be the actuality. And the I is just one of those. Yet the I says, I am living my life. And the very perception, the very view, the very thought, the very idea, doesn't come from I. It comes from the dependently arising conditions which create the view. Haphazardly assembled. We come of age as masks. Well, a gem of a one-liner. We come of age as masks. Our true face never speaks. Our true face never speaks. When we say we come of age, speaking about coming of age, growing up, evolving, developing, coming, being, m- being uh, um, mature, knowing things well, or whatever view that we, we, we have. But actually, it's a kind of mask that we have. It's a kind of, not, not necessarily a bad mask, it's a mask which we have. And we might say, oh, before I was doing a lot of practice. And that was how I was living my life. And then after, after that, my uh, 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 teacher said, oh, uh, you better go and uh, uh, teach or something like that. So then the role arises and, and, and appears. And, and it can be a bit like a mask. It becomes a mask when we begin to build into it, it Whatever the role we begin to identify with it and, and it becomes the teacher Or whatever role you or we have But when we actually are just still again The teacher is unlocatable Where? Show Show can't find it. Voice coming out? And your voice is coming out. Is it that one person, in this case, this person is just rambling on for 45 minutes? Is it that others agreed to be silent or asleep while I talk? <laughs> so the actual appearance called teacher actually. Isn't the truth unlocatable? And if one person in the hall said, forget the retreat, let's make it a disco. (laughs) And felt inspired to dance in here between 7.20 and 8.10. I'm not quite sure what the quality of the discourse would be because the teacher can only arise because of the dependently arising conditions which give support but we can't find, we can't locate where, where we come of age as masks our true face never speaks Beautiful. Somewhere there must be storehouses where all these lives are laid away away, like suits of armor, old carriages or clothes hanging limply on the walls. I wonder what he's speaking here. Sometimes we... as it is in the Dharma tradition as well, we often... It's a little bit of confusion, but there's often talk in uh, Buddhism on um, past and future lives. great, great deal of talk. It's, it's kind of one of those beliefs which uh, uh, Buddhists are supposed to have. And, and therefore, some uh, are believers... Some are disbelievers, and some are not sure. And the view of past and future lives, uh, it's um, extremely hard to confirm to anyone by experience. I mean, what do we do when we're dead? We say, oh, dead. Oh, I'm dead. So, and others will have experiences and put them in terms of past, past lives, etc. All of that, whether it's yes or no, I think is just utterly incidental to, to what matters. And in that we say, sometimes we look and we extract experiences, which I think is more important. We extract experiences from what is past, and it comes back into consciousness, and we have the experience <clears throat> of reliving it—small event, which or big one, which was of yesterday or yesteryear, some way, somewhere in the past, in the back—and we suddenly find we're actually going through the whole scenario all over again, with the emotions and the feelings and the thoughts, maybe intensely pleasurable or intensely distressing <clears throat> and <clears throat> it's s- such that there's a s- this storehouse it would appear in which we have all these old lives which at any moment without the cooperation of I can suddenly loom large <clears throat> into the present moment and we're reliving and thus The only rebirth that matters to investigate is the rebirth of this I and mine. The storehouse, as Rilke says, and saying somewhere there must be storehouses where all these lives are laid away, like suits of armour or old carriages or clothes hanging limply on the walls. (coughs) Sometimes it would appear that kind of the the memory. It would appear it is full of armour and old clothes and all things hanging around w- within our past. It would uh, would appear, and from time to time, as I said, they get reborn into the into the present moment. And with that, sometimes the influence of that is incredibly unsatisfactory. So the Dharma. Teachings say to us, let us end this rebirth for once and all. For once and for all. And sometimes we say in that viewing of the past, and they're turning the attention to it, oh, I chose to go to the past and attend to something that was of the past. And it would appear strongly like that one does intend to do that. But what's the movement in the intention that makes us select specifics? And why is it that much of what we select is a tiny detail of the total process which was going on? Just think. Just think in a day ordinary human beings day how many mind moments there has been how many in each snap of the fingers and then we say I looked at the past and I decided to work on this And out of that generates the storehouse of impressions and we have no idea who is choosing. We have no idea why we should actually attend to some certain particulars at the neglect of far more. And what we actually have access to is infinitesimal. Just take a day. And You wake up in tomorrow morning and you look back on today. And you might just remember one little thing. And somehow we stored that little event. It might be accurate or it might be laden with the way that we woke up. Oh, God, it's got another full day to go in this place before liberation. And all of that moves onto yesterday and fuses. And we're having difficulty then of sorting out what's what. What, as it were, is being brought to the past, as it were, and what is the past bringing, which is which? Nobody has answered the question ever. Because it's not our life. Somewhere there must be storehouses where all these things are laid away like suits of armour or old carriages or clothes hanging limply on the walls. Then he says, maybe old paths Lead there. Lead where? Lead to the true face that never speaks. So the world of language comes out. The world of words. The world of I and lives, past, present, and future the world of descriptions come out. The world of roles and the suits of armour and the clothes hanging limply on the line of the past or whatever it might be. And maybe all of it, all all of that, in a way, it's just indicating to us Our true face which never speaks. Voice comes out. Words appear in the world. And some of you will know of the uh, German-speaking, Austrian philosopher, Ludwig Wittgenstein. And some will credit him as being one of the most foremost and influential philosophers of the, the 20th century. For most of us, what he writes is impossible to understand. <laughs> He's also spent time in the monastery in Austria. Spent time in the fords of alone in Norway. Spent time working as a, a school teacher to children in, in the Alps. He spent time and years in living in great poverty, great simplicity, had nothing. Came from a very rich uh, rich Viennese uh, Jewish family. Gave all the money away. Gave several thousand dollars to Rilke's secretary. And to Rilke to help support him. And he explores, Wittgenstein, the influence and the way language shapes our view of things. And in countless ways, countless ways does, does he do it. You don't have to understand any of that. One that just has to recall the very last words of Wittgenstein. Of what words cannot speak we must pass over in silence. Went through all the lay language and gives shape to views and perceptions and thoughts and beliefs and the way language, as it were, exists outside of the world and takes commentary on it and all the suppositions, all of that, he just demolishes. He spoke in a conference in Vienna And they expected him to speak about the logic of language. And Wittgenstein picked up a book and read the poetry of Rabindranath Tagore. And they looked at him. And he just made it clear. The poetry said more about what he's talking about than what he'd written. Of what words cannot speak. We must pass over in silence in laying to rest all our clothes of our language the clothes of our roles the clothes of our history, the clothes of our self we know our true face which never speaks maybe all paths lead there maybe all paths lead there to the repository, very beautiful line to finish, to the repository of unlived things. What does that mean? Someone might listen to that. Doesn't sound very attractive. Some might say, but I've been living with unlived things for years. (laughs) So it's such. If we have explored with interest the the movement of the eye, the idea that I live my life, and all the associations that go with it—voices, inner and outer, fears, and little little pleasures—and somehow we're not taking any of that on board. Maybe there's a repository of all of this. Maybe in that unspoken face it rests, which makes it all possible. All of it. And that somehow our attention in a very odd and unhappy, happy, unhappy way, ultimately, for sure, kind of as direct us directed us into we are living our life it's my life and I am living it and maybe it's not my life and maybe I am not living it but in some extraordinary way it's living itself it belongs to that which is extraordinarily unlived and therefore undying therefore without death that's perhaps it all belongs there. And we've just taken up something and we say, I am living it. Because we took up something which was not ours to live. And there's something freeing and, and extraordinary about it and mysterious and magical and, and, and mystical to authentically and, and, and truly know No one lives his life. And this, with Rilke, sitting in the monastery there, putting aside all the ideas of I am living my life, suddenly the flowering of that came, not actually in the monastery, but it came some weeks or months after or whenever, back in Germany, and then it suddenly started to come through. The truth of the of that which is not obvious to everyday mind in the finally in the uh, first talk of the uh, Buddha in the middle Lent sayings speaking to this with uh, one of the staff today it's there's Uh, The Buddha speaks of four kinds of people in this world. And the first kind of person he refers to is a person who is um, uninstructed. He says, uninstructed, whose everyday mind in relationship to the world is one in which everything that takes place well that's the way things are, that's how it is, this is the reality of things you, 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 you enter into this world uh, you, you're born uh, you live uh, you grow old if you're lucky and uh, you die it's a one off and that's it and might as well get on with it and plenty of people in various ways mm. take the view So no no, no questioning of what it is to be in this extraordinary thing, living, living. living. And then there are others who are engaged in the field of uh, exploration, wish to bring consciousness to bear on existence, to reveal it more clearly, who, in the language we would use here, are engaged in practice, to see well, to see clearly, to understand, not to overlook what it is being here. There are those, third kind of person in this world, who has understood the poem of Rilke this evening. Understood it. Not bemused by it knows exactly what's being pointed to in the insightful and wondrous poetic lines and therefore not having a life, there's not a life to lose and therefore the birth and death has faded as a problem out of existence. And then the fourth kind of person that he refers to is those men and women in the world who speak of this as the first and most important thing of life to understand, four kinds kinds of people. I think one of the skillfulnesses of that um, way of looking is that sometimes in our generalized view as you and I, the living generation, sometimes we want to think uh, everybody is growing. Everybody is evolving. Everybody is developing. And sometimes you want to have a very positive view in that way. And it's the view that things are always getting better, improving, which is more strong in US culture, I may say, than most others. God knows why. And, sorry, and others will tend to take a more um, doubting uh, 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 view and one finds that in uh, uh, Europe as well in England and, and France or whatever, in terms of common generalities yeah. and so it's, things are getting worse or things are getting better or things are staying much the same we can repeat these but just attending to where we are watching for the for the views which has a kind of sweeping statements about things trying to be vigilant with regard to to that but certainly while we live while all this is going on in the everyday uh, sense of things let's not take the most that which is most evident for self to self as being the way things are we could just Bear that in awareness that what is evident to the self, in this case I am living my life, what is evident to the self is not the way things truly are. It's just something that the self, the I, has agreed on, has assumed, has taken for granted. But just because the I and the self does it, doesn't mean anything. And sometimes that duality fades away. And so Wilke says at the end, maybe your paths lead there to the repository of unlived things. Not to nothingness, not to a vague abstraction, but to a discovery of that which knows neither life nor death. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings know their unspoken face. May all beings be in touch with that which makes all things possible.